Hello, everyone. Welcome to From Nowhere to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. As we wrap up our series on Aesop's fables today, we look at some of the unanswered questions left to us by our examination. Rather than being extraneous tidbits, these questions are actually some of the bigger overarching concepts that seat the smaller tales within a context. Who was Aesop? And what does his body of work really tell us? Mm. All right, so I appreciate the listeners um, sticking with us through this series. Indeed. <laughs> uh, this is, I think this has been our longest span of doing one thing in a row. Um, and, uh, you know, I know sometimes you might say, okay, all right, let's move on to something else. But, um, you know, looking at the viewing numbers or the listening numbers, I should say, people have really, really enjoyed it. And I think that, you know, it's not necessarily the end. There's just plenty of animals that we could look at in the future. <laughs> sure. But um, for the purpose of the series, we're going to wrap it up today and we're going to take a, a bit of a meta view of, of Aesop and the fables. So the first question naturally is, um, well, maybe not naturally. The <laughs> listeners, I, if they've listened to this series, they probably know at this point. But for anybody jumping in, the question is, was there an Aesop to begin with? Well, and you know through your reading as, as I do mine, and, and as well as teachers encountered and so on, we don't know. <clears throat> there, There is not enough evidence to be sure. And it's rather like Homer in that way, the... Um, the eponymous author of of the Iliad and the Odyssey. But the critical opinion is tending toward that there wasn't a Homer. There were there was Homer, which which is uh, an umbrella for people who developed those stories. And we have so little information about so many things from 2,500 years ago, which is a drip in the time bucket, mm-hmm. uh, that it's, it is possible that Aesop existed, but there's not much to, to support that. However, there is much support of an Aesop that could have been constructed based upon the, what, what observations were made by people who referenced the fables and uh, based upon a, a rather not questionable but in incomplete and re- perhaps even too pat uh, life story of Aesop. So it's always interesting to, get to, to approach this of is this a constructed author or is this a real author? Because the first thing one might ask is what difference does it make? Uh, <laughs> yeah, but it does. But it does. And, and that's the thing is this is where um fables it, it becomes myth, right? And I love this. We've talked about this on the show a, a couple times, but we'll we'll go over it again for anybody that didn't listen to those episodes. I love that aspect of history where it becomes myth with mm-hmm. Aesop, with Homer, with Robin Hood, with, with King Arthur. Yeah, with these characters. Um when you look back at at the few historical texts that we have from the time, and you say, well, maybe this was a real person, maybe it was a story, um, but the details, right? The details that emerge, or the things that are attributed to them, or these sorts of things, 
it makes you wonder, well, could it just be invented or was there some seed that this started from in reality? I think see, the, the seed it started from is where, where I approach it. I think maybe there, there was an Aesop, but the very nature of the tales, and we'll get into that, but just the, the genre itself, the brevity, the open-endedness of it, the, the, um, the lack of detail that time locks or even culturally locks the stories means that many people could do make fables mm. and and do mm. and we could we could tell a story about oh, you know, I've told you this one before but I don't think I've mentioned it on on this coming coming back from a teaching session at night in a winter storm I. Uh, I just gave you too many details. A teacher is coming home in a winter storm and stops quickly, shortly, because he sees glowing eyes, but they're moving strangely. He stops, he gets out of his transportation, and he sees a raccoon dragging a lifeless raccoon across the road and into the ditch. And the raccoon had placed its own life at risk in getting the other raccoon off the road. End of story. Hmm. Now I could I could make up a moral. Right. But I won't. <laughs> but rather than saying cars and transportation, rather than, you know, it's it's because I, I was starting to detail it in a way that would time lock it. That's why I tried to back away from it. We can construct fables. We do. All fabulous literature has been part of our lives since literature began. So it's not so important necessarily that there was an Aesop, but what do the tales do for us as people? Yeah, yeah. And so, and we we certainly know that um, everything that was said about Aesop isn't true based off of time frames and things. So there was definitely, at the bare minimum, em- embellishment on his life accomplishments and on these these different parts of it. Yes. Um, but yeah, it's that kernel of truth, right? Another fable, right? I was on my way home from work this week and I saw two animals along a hedgerow and you know the grass was about knee high and they were eating in the grass. So I never saw their heads, um, but they were moving around and I drove past them fairly close to them and they were, they're brown, um, body shapes kind of like deer, but the body mechanics of movement was kind of like a dog. And I stared at these things as I drove past, probably got within 60, 80 feet of them. And I still can't figure out what animal it was. If it was a large dog or a small deer or something else entirely, because I never saw the head, right? If I had seen the head, I would have been immediately able to identify the animal. Mm -hmm. I feel like these historical accounts are sort of similar, right? You can see the body of work, the body of evidence, but the head, the where where it originated, this identifying concept is hidden from us. That's a marvelous analogy. And so trying to determine if what sort of thing this is that we're looking at, whether it's a, a his, historical thing or um, a literary thing or you know a mythological thing, it's all sort of difficult to to 
translate without seeing the beginning. Of well, it. there is, and there and there's a reference in Herodotus, a, a very famous ancient hist- historian, as as well as one a book of mythic tales. Uh, the references. Uh, Aesopic fables before Aesop was said to be alive. Hmm. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, that it's, I don't say that it's, that it's trivial because it's not, but we are constantly fascinated by the source. People have to find the source of the Nile back in the day, but find the source of the river. Okay. Now we're finding that the source of rivers is drying up and so are the rivers. Um, that's not helping us to know the source, although we know the problem where the source is, but but why the more important is the story we construct or have that has been constructed of Aesop or Aesop is, is telling the, what we want to accept that we've been told about Aesop. So as we've referenced many times in the internet encyclopedia of philosophy, there's a marvelous article on this very topic on, on Aesop. And you can look that up online and it's free. Uh, but it essentially details that Aesop, uh, apparently, like Socrates, was born ugly, whatever that means. Why would we concentrate on that? Why would that be, a, you know, in, in the 21st century, one would hope we wouldn't concentrate on that, but of course there are people who would. Um, that, that Aesop was, was unable to speak. Uh, that Aesop had, uh, a, Helped a priestess of, of a goddess and therefore received a gift of storytelling from said goddess. And that Aesop became a citizen rather than a slave. And in becoming a citizen, somehow uh, put himself in a position eventually of, of being toppled by other citizens of another place. And, and then even his end is, is different. Either the citizens of that other place, Delphi, kill him, or he jumps off the cliff before they can because he wants the agency to do himself and not to let them do him in. Hmm. So it's all very mythic. Yeah. As you said. Uh, but, but it looks constructed to accommodate or explain why the stories are about animals. And it looks constructed as if uh, there's somehow a coding going on of various levels for a person who had been a slave talking to other slaves about how to survive. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. So you've given us sort of a, a brief biography of Aesop there. Um, I guess the question would be, right? Why invent or attribute all fables to one man? You know, like I, it, it makes sense retrospectively, right? So for for our purposes, it's easier to remember these fables since they're attributed to one man, Aesop, right? It's easy, Aesop's fables. But in modern times, right? If we were to do that, let's say I invent somebody, right? Uh, you know, Dr. Fable. Yeah. <laughs> and I say, okay, well, this guy created, you know, all short works of fiction for the entire planet. People wouldn't stand for that because people would want credit for their work. You know, yeah. somebody would want to say, oh, no, no, this is a fable written by Joel Bouchard or written right. by Norm right. Gayford, right? You'd think that that sort of, um, you know, attachment to your work still would have 
survive still would have been applicable 2500 years ago right people would want to say oh no i want people to know that i wrote this but instead these fables are ascribed to aesop do you think they were always ascribed to aesop or do you think that people just took cultural tales and then um you know sort of amalgamated them and then contributed them how do you think that that sort of in my reading of things I, the, that that latter i think makes makes more sense the the article in the iep uh, in encyclopedia of philosophy it's, makes a point that i think is cogent and it, it 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 is consistent with other articles that i have read in that uh, at the at the time of the ancients which is a big span of time but an ancient philosophy people wanted philosophers to live whatever philosophy they were espousing we don't necessarily demand that in our own time you can philosophize about ideas but that doesn't mean you necessarily accept them or adhere to them in that time you did uh, more or less hmm. thus thus socrates and dying uh, for his beliefs in the state and responsibility and so on. So to formulate an Aesop who lived a life that was like unto an animal uh, achieving consciousness, which is cringeworthy for us in the 21st century to even say, but this is what's ascribed to his tale, uh, that that there is a, a moral even in that, and then a, a probably apocryphal, but perhaps not, a story in which he gets the Senate to declare him as a citizen because he said it's not appropriate for a slave to speak to the Senate, but they wanted to hear what he had to say, and so they voted to let him be a citizen in order so they could hear it. Imagine that happening in the 21st century. Yeah. I don't, no. <laughs> there. So... I, I think that the story accommodates the form. Yeah. It's almost as if he was like a storytelling Captain America or something. Right? <laughs> he starts out kind of, kind of ugly and sort of, you know, down on, you know, down on his luck and then sort of becomes a symbol for, yeah. Yeah. you know, and he's associated with these things. So yeah, it's sort of a, it's sort of a, a meme almost, right? <laughs> it, it is. And it's not, it's not really, I don't, I don't find it um, problematic or, or questionable in the least because we say, well, we, we construct an author. Well, we all construct ourselves anyway. There's philosophy in that. We reconstruct our memories on a moment to moment basis. We, we reshape, we rewrite, we, there is no formal solid memory. Uh, even in a sacred text, the, the Gospels are attributed to, uh, by name, eponymously to uh, disciples. But the scholarship shows that they didn't write these things. In fact, they were written far beyond the lifetime of some of these uh, characters. So they're constructed. The, the very name of, of calling something Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John is a construction. That doesn't mean it's bad. It, 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 there, there are purposes for it. But we construct ourselves as individuals. We construct our relationship to a society. We, and so this is not an unfamiliar thing. Yeah, and that that can rub people the wrong way. Obviously, um, you know, memory is an interesting one because I, I sort of have a unique insight on that because I don't 
I don't have a sense of smell anymore, right? I did when I was younger. And so when people say that scent is most strongly linked to smell, um, I think that a lot of people with normal senses might scratch their head at that a bit, you know? But as somebody who had a sense of smell and now doesn't, right? I completely understand um, sight not being affected with it, you know? Because even yesterday, right? <laughs> My wife asked me, hey, does a stop sign have six or eight sides? And I thought about it for a minute. <laughs> uh, six, eight. No, yeah, eight. Final answer, right? So, like, you're trying to you're trying to reconstruct that, right? Or with what somebody said, right? Oh, well, you said this. No, I didn't. I said this, right? And you go back and forth. But with scent, right? I can still remember smells from when I could smell when I was a child, Mm -hmm. right? The Adirondacks, the beach, uh, my grandpa's pipe tobacco, these things, and so and remembering those scents comes back as if I were smelling them at the moment, yes, as it if does. it's still there. So that potency um, sort of reveals to you that, oh, okay, so when people say scent is your strongest link to memory, that's why. That, that as, you know, as far as you know, that doesn't really change throughout time the mm-hmm. way that something you might see or something you might hear or feel does, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so... With that, with that in mind, this idea of it being a construction, um, we we like you said, we're constantly we're constantly doing this, and so Aesop necessarily was a construction of some kind. Whether or not he was a historical character um, throughout time, as these fables were were amalgamated, he he became a, a construction. He became a construction, and as 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 Homer. Uh, in the eyes of many, which doesn't diminish whoever, whatever Aesop was, but it does somehow, as you said before, honor an idea of an association, a cluster of, oh, this is what we mean. Mm-hmm. So it's almost a convenient categorization rather than a necessity of of uh, the purity of of one author. And if there's anything that I hope listeners have taken away after 99 episodes, it's that <laughs> categorizations um, are problematic. You know, even the categorization of a of a person, as as we're identifying here, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, even within ourselves, right? Me remembering, you know, what's happened to me throughout my life, my memory isn't infallible, so my own sort of conceptualization of myself isn't accurate, much less. One of Aesop, but that doesn't invalidate the. No, it doesn't invalidate it, and it doesn't mean that the memory is completely inaccurate. It usually means that the memory is is in flux and uh, has moments of abstraction or vagueness, but still is anchored to something. After having had COVID, I have sporadic anosmia, so I know what you're talking about. Hmm. Uh, I, to the point where my my granddaughter knows about this and is three and a half and saying, Grandpa, one of the first things she asked me is, do you have your smell today? Because she wants to share some flowers with me and realizes that she can't share the scent with me if I don't have my smell that day. But I, even the days that I don't have my smell, I remember smell, right? And Mm -hmm. and it's probably going to be back in a day or two again. It's usually how it's been. Uh, So this on again, off again sense was first very disorienting and troubling and i don't like it but there's nothing to be done about it (laughs) um 
and and it 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 makes one curious about what other things one is taking in. And so we go back to Aesop and say, well, what what is it we're being asked to take in? And I and I think that we can probably agree as a starting place that it's that it's a practical philosophical approach. I have trouble with the article in the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy and to the degree that it at first seems to take the position that really it's not philosophy, these stories, because there's not an argument being advanced, which is a bias toward Western philosophy that <clears throat> right. we, we know has been severely questioned over, over time, but that it, that, that it offers the possibility for discursive discussional philosophy but that ultimately is about some kinds of practicality. And we've talked about that for like four weeks. So I think that's something we dwell on it. Yeah, no, that's a great segue into, I want to get, I want to talk about the animals again a little bit, because I feel like it's, it's relevant now. Look, taking a, a meta view of them and um, that that'll help answer some of these, these yeah. questions. I think, um, do you believe there's an importance in the choice of animals for the fables or do you think it's just arbitrary? No, I think there's. I, I think there's a point. As we've said, the, the fox has a cluster of associations: clever, wily, careful. You know, mm-hmm. it's not not just the negative connotations uh, or characteristics associated with it. The same is true with various birds. Uh, you know, we we talk about an eagle. We're not talking about a crow. A crow has different ca- characteristics, and I th- I think that while there wasn't the animal science back in the day. Of there was still an observational capacity. Whether or not you know what motivates a raven or any corvid, uh, if you watch really closely, and no doubt people who watched thousands of years ago, you can tell that they're paying attention to us. You can tell that they keep track of who's going into a building or coming back out. The revelations about how specific that can be, that's modern science and observation. So there are characteristics that are it's not random storytelling. Yeah, yeah. So that's sort of the setup question, right? Do you think there are some universal stereotypes in the way humans anthropomorphize certain species of animals? So in other words, like you just said, um, you know, basically I asked I asked the, the first question, and then there's we know that these animals do have characteristics based upon science yeah, typical yeah. evidence now but it's still sort of in its infancy there's still a lot of it as we've talked about with our cats in various episodes right how much of it is innate characteristics that they have and how much of it is characteristics that we're ascribing to them right uh, uh, so um do you think that there's universal stereotypes in the way we anthropomorphize the species in Aesop's fables that's a great question well, I, if we start from the immediate and work backwards, uh, I, I think that we reinforce or doom our stereotypes based on all the technological measurement that we can do of animals. There's a, there's a wonderful article. It's in the Atlantic. When I'm done with this, I'll share it with you. It's in the newest Atlantic. It's called How Animals Understand the World hmm. by Ed Young. And, and, and one of the things, many things that he says is to perceive the world through other senses is to, is to find splendor and familiarity in the sacred and the mundane. And there, the article is about many things, but it's about learning how animals perceive, which we've done through, now we can tell 
because of optics, what a cow sees or what a cat sees. Right? And we know they see the world differently. And knowing how the, something of how they see the world differently, we see, can see the world through their eyes. And I think if we take that back to the esophic tale-telling, that we can see brand new things uh, that go far beyond the initial anthropomorphizing. So I think it's reversing that the knowledge we gain in science has the possibility of entirely refreshing what we can take from these fables. Yeah, I think that's really good. So, yeah, and what I'm thinking about with that question is like the fox, for instance, right? The, yeah. the fox is portrayed as this, like you said, clever, careful, um, witty kind of animal. Mm-hmm. And it makes you, you know, you wonder, okay, we can understand um, why humans anthropomorphize foxes that way based off of some of their behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember stumbling upon a, a, a fox kit um, one time and the mother was coming back and the way that the mother acted, you know, she was, she was yelling at me, um, but she didn't attack me. You know, she ran around, she tried to like circle around and sort of make it seem like it almost like there was a lot of foxes, right? She didn't, <laughs> she didn't make herself visible. She's distracting. Um, you. Yeah. She was just running around yelling at me um, and, you know, terrible sound and whatnot. And that's, that seems to be a pretty quick-witted thing to do, right? Okay, but well, the fox knows that it can't attack me. It can't fight me, right? It's not going to it's not going to win that battle. But through sub subterfuge and distraction and some of these other things it can get me away. No doubt ancients also had this of uh, similar run-ins with all these various animals and that's why they're attributing characteristics to them. Mm-hmm. Um but, we also, but are those characteristics true, right? Well, Is I a think, fox actually a clever animal? Right. You know? I I think that that's that's what we have more of the capacity to find out and to pay attention to now. Uh, but we won't escape our anthropomorphism entirely because we've been, tr- we've been trained into it. If not genetically, then narratively through stories all the way back to the beginning of storytelling, we're supposed to dominate the earth. We're supposed to be in charge of all things. We're supposed to, uh, it's our world after all. And so we see things that way. Uh, but I think that, that your question is is a, a precisely useful one because if we bother to think about that question, this is this is a common thing across literary studies is the questionable narrator. Yes, because here's the thing, right? That's where I, that's where I was going with this is if we can look at these animals, right? And, and anthropomorphize them, give them human qualities. We tame them. But we are also animals. Yes. And animals also have consciousness. Are animals in some way ascribing certain qualities to us when they see us that structure their interactions, right? One thinks they must. Hmm. Just by, I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not an animal scientist, but just to do anecdotal referencing if one has pets. If I raise my voice, Sternly, my cat wakes me up at three thirty in the morning, and I say, "Philip, cat takes off." Then it starts yelling at me from a distance. The cat seems to want me awake. The cat doesn't need food, and the cat settles down when I'm padding around downstairs trying to find him to put him in a room with water and food, and they'll leave me alone for three hours. The cat wants me awake. I don't know why. For companionship. 
to feel like there's noise in the house. I, I, I could certainly make a, make a statement that wouldn't, that could sound sure, but I can't be sure about that. But I think it's a great question because again, it can refresh the stories if we, what, what is the fox thinking? How about if we could do this meta narrative that we have from anything from the She Hulk on uh, backward, uh, where the characters break the fourth wall and talk to us? What if the fox looks out at the so called camera and says, What do you mean I'm clever? You think this is a clever situation I'm in? Let's talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and so, there, well, the, again, this Ed Young article of uh, by flooding the environment with light and sound. We're confounding the senses of countless animals, but we can still save the quiet and preserve the dark. But it's just metaphorically, by flooding the environment with light and sound, the light and sound of us and our perceptions, this is talking about literal light and literal noise. But I think that light and that noise is metaphorical too, and we, we assert it onto the animal. Because after all, we we know because we're animals who are of the highest order. Yeah, and this, and this is <laughs> this has been explored, right? What I what it takes me to is um the Jungle Book. Ah, right? yes, yes. So yes. in the Jungle Book, you very much have asopic animals in the sense that they can talk and they oh, yes. have um they have the qualities that we humans ascribe rooted to them. absolutely. But they yeah. have a conception of man and of man's tools and of man's society and the dangers that it poses to them and and these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And it makes you wonder, you know, is I wonder if there's any truth to that. Do, do animals have the sort of cognitive capabilities? Obviously, not to that level that these animals do. But is there something going on back there when that fox sees a human near its den that it acts a different way than if it saw a wolf near the den or a deer near the den or these sorts of things? Uh, I I I think. That there is, and and again, this is anecdotal, but I, but if you you many of us have had some experience like this, I think it's pretty normalized, if we are outside at all, um, and it's rather of it has a physics component, uh, the the idea that in physics is that the moment you observe something, you change its behavior. Observing particles, for instance, well, if any of us have walked into a a, a wooded park or a woodland of any kind. You approach the woods, the bird song is different. Sometimes it stops entirely. Sometimes chipmunks chip and disappear. Then we hear a caw. <laughs> we have set up an alert system. We have changed the behavior in the immediate zone. You know, we, 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 we can't be, div- we are, people like to think we're divorced from nature. Oh, well, I like the natural world. We are totally in the natural world, even in our constructedness of a debasement of the natural world. And so we are always affecting the natural world. There's a, there was an article, uh, this is through Google Scholar, but um, it, it, this is a quotation. Aesop and his work provide a good point of departure for reflecting on notions of identity and alterity in the ancient Greek world. For various aspects of this alterity are combined in the person of the fabulist. He is at once barbarian, slave, and deformed. A closer look is required to figure out what's going on, what paradoxes there are, what enigmas. And alterity means uh, otherness. So this is an article saying, you know, embedded in these fables, is, as, as we've explored somewhat, is the, the, the possibility for understanding the other rather than seeing our, ourselves in the other. Hmm. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I'm sure there's some people out there that are thinking, okay, well, it's, it's, it's conditioning, right? Maybe it's conditioning. Um, because I've had another encounter with a fox, right? Where I was at work several years ago. And, um, you know, towards dusk, a fox ran across the parking lot. And I shouted at him. I said, hey. And he stopped and he looked at me. Mm-hmm. He's about 15 feet away. And I was eating lunch. So I threw him a piece of my turkey sandwich. And he came and he sniffed it and he ate it. And then he looked at me and then he ran off. But then the next day when I was eating lunch, he was back. Right? <laughs> yeah. And each time he got a little closer and a little closer till eventually I could pet him. And he was, he was all right with that, you know? And so that seems to be conditioning, right? All right. So I, I fed him um, and then his, you know, he, he didn't perceive me as a threat and we ended up with a, with a sort of um, a relationship, right? And we see this with all kinds of different animals with humans, but so there's the conditioning aspect, certainly, but there's also those initial things, right? With that fox, if you had put 12 foxes in front of me, right, and, and I'd done the same thing each time, you'd get 12 different responses. Some of them would run away faster. Some of them might be curious even without the food aspect. Some of them would do, they do all these different- Some of them would bite you when you tried to pet it, even if you're giving them food. Yeah, yeah. Or, or yeah, or run away. You know, there's, so there's, so there's, there's something else going on be, besides <laughs> just the instincts and besides just- the conditioning. Yes, there is. And that's why we were saying in previous episodes talking about Aesop, there isn't one fox. There's nothing to indicate. He never says always the fox. He says a fox. Hmm. Not the definite article, the indefinite article, which which means we're talking about more than one. Uh, the goat, well, if it's the goat and the farmer, say it's, it's the goat in that story, in that context. It's not all goats. That's part of the brilliance of this and why I think it may well be more than one writer. Right. Because of the alternative positions. So the one scholar has said about this Greek, Greek culture challenges the conventional perception of ancient Greece as the paradigm for a universal, unified model of culture. Aesop gives us the possibility of, of seeing of multiple cultures in conflict and collaboration and attempts at unification, which brings them right up into the currents. Yeah. And in, in some ways, you just said you have 12 foxes and 12 responses. The fact that one fox encounters you that way does not mean you're going to be, that's always going to be the encounter. And to assume it, it, it is would be naive mm. and, and bloody dangerous. Right. <laughs> so, Building off that, do you think Aesop's fables paint a cohesive picture of the animals as characters? I uh, cohesive as in a unifying a small set of characteristics. No, no, and I think we've explored that yeah. by looking at. And I and I wouldn't have necessarily said that before uh, we we went on this adventure um, because they are very very different. There yeah, isn't and- a there isn't the fox. Yeah, and I think that that the fox is a is a great example because we read the one fable about the fox and his tail, right? Where he got his tail stuck, and then he gathered all the other foxes and and tried to outwit them into saying that you know, hey, tails are really you know a nuisance. And yeah, all they that. had a fox congress. And, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> the other fox said, 
Matt, you're just trying to get us, to, you know, trying to put us in a bad situation. Well, there you have two foxes right there that are acting quite, quite differently. Yeah. So yeah, I think that, um, you know, there is generalizations and there is an ascription of certain qualities to fox as mm-hmm. an animal. But even with that, um, the foxes are definitely individuals in the fables. Is there a metamoral to an animal's fable? Do you think? Do you think that? Um, all fox tales have certain qualities in common, the way a fox. So the fox is a character. They have certain qualities in common and they have certain differences. Do you think that the the fables about the fox are similar? Do you think that they have they all have things in common despite their their subtle differences? They have the name fox. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 they and they and they inevitably uh shoot out umbilicae to our to our consciousness to say oh clever oh trick trickster oh i think we can't avoid thinking that but we can think about thinking that and that's what makes it uh not a unification Hmm. Uh, i i think at at one time uh, when it was that it's considered perhaps as most moralistic when you did not have the opportunity of not having a moral set with it in any particular tale, that people were uh, more likely to say, if my grandmother did this to me sometimes, you know, don't be the hare, be the tortoise. Well, okay, based on that story, okay. But it's like, well, that's it. That's what you learn. <laughs> yeah. And and I don't think it's that simple. Yeah, because and, and it's even contradictory if you look at it that way, right? Because the tortoise and the hare teaches you um to be patient, don't be too hasty. But then we've looked at other tales that have said be decisive. Like yeah, don't have two positions. Hasty, don't think about some don't stop to think about something, take right. action, right? So <laughs> yeah, I think in terms of you know, I it it you have to look at it a little bit more situationally than that. I think that it it varies a little bit from animal to animal though. Because I think that when we looked at the donkey, I think the donkey comes closest to having a meta moral to it, right? Yeah. All of the stories about the donkey seem to revolve around the, the this one thing: work and, and too much work. Yeah, yeah. But I think that even even there, within that, you know, you look at the the donkey and the mule, or you look at the, the various stories. There are differences that can be gleaned from them. I think so, and if you take them in their entirety, if if someone had a curriculum of Aesop's. Fables, which isn't a bad idea, uh, and 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 a discussion of those tales, rather than just plucking them out as as one wishes, then you would you would perhaps get an overarching meta view that may amount to be aware of your circumstances and act according to those circumstances. Mm. Uh, which is me reading that, that that whole thing because we've been spending so much time with them. Uh, but I don't think that's what the moralists don't want deep thought. They just want to tell you what you're supposed to think. Right. And, and so I don't find moralism uh, a particularly attractive or, or terribly complicated on the, on the surface. Yeah. But, and, and, but that's where, some of the difficult discussion around Aesop's fables comes in into effect, right? We've had a great time with it over the past several weeks, looking at it and taking deep philosophical dives into it. But like you said, um, the Stanford Encyclopedia article, um, 
it said, no, it's not about taking a deep dive. It's really about, um, you know, giving, giving practical moral lessons. The problem with looking at it that way is what we just brought up. There are contradictory lessons taught among the fables. So, you know, that tells you one of two things, either the point of the fables is not necessarily to be a practical story, but like you said, rather a collection of stories that tells you, informs you how in different situations you should act differently mm-hmm. or, um, you know, that it's, it's written by several different authors with opposing viewpoints, right? Uh, which uh, across time, which is, you know, the fascinating thing is when you talk about moralism, you think of Martin Luther, the 95 theses, the, 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 the Lutheranism, Protestantism, reform. Martin Luther, contrary to whatever one might have thought, uh, said that the Aesop's fables are second only to the Bible for philosophical usefulness. Hmm. And at that time, he's, he's basically saying, this pagan author is worth more than any of the other philosophers. Well, there's that, 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 uh, fundamentalist Christian notion that the, that the Greek, of Greek philosophers are bunk. So that's built into Luther. Okay. I'll put that away for a moment. But in the fables, he found the wisdom and, and, and he, he, he used the fables in, in homilies. He referred to them constantly in writing. He was, he was putting together a book of them of, of his own uh, sorting. Uh, now, a, a grand moralist and a theological thinker who thinks that they're worth that kind of attention um, should stop one in one's tracks, take a pause and take a think and say, no matter what you think of Martin Luther and so on. Um, there was something there in the in medieval time that was considered deeply important. Yeah. And you and I were talking about it before the show a little bit. Um, you get from things what you put into them. So regardless <clears throat> of what a literary scholar may say about whether or not Aesop's fables are philosophical, the point is Martin Luther and he, us over the past several weeks have proved that they can be philosophical. Yeah, they, so whether or not you want to include them in the category of philosophy, which we've talked about categories being problematic already. Absolutely. Um, yep. The fact is you can um, look at these things philosophically regardless. So given we, we've, we're sort of getting into, um, you know, we've, we've, we're looking at Aesop's fables. We've talked about um, we're at this crux, right, of looking at them philosophically and sort of metaphorically versus practically. Um, and while we can do the former, and we have been doing the former, the reality of the intent is probably the latter, right? It was probably written by several different people with the intent of teaching Practical. slaves, yeah. these sorts of things. And so given the historical intent, are Aesop's fables moral or ethical do you think well if i if i think of it's a good question because if i think of them as as coded survival manuals 
it makes as much sense to me as things that were coded in the, the horrific beginning of racism in our own country, the, 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 the unconscionable slavery that we embraced and kept going, and it still resonates into our own culture. Uh, now, it, anything that can help one maintain uh, within one's peers uh, uh, to survive, and not just to survive, but to to uh, acknowledge one's humanity and continue, uh, I think is important. Uh, and so I think of things like songs, or you think of any underground movement in any particular war or clash between imperial forces and native forces. In songs and stories, there's always embedded other things. Hmm. And uh, whether it's symbol codes for people wandering, finding a safe place uh, during the Depression, you know, all, all kinds of circumstances. And so I think, yes, that, that is valuable. But if that was all that was valuable to it, then it's not of much interest now, but it's still of interest. Well, it was also used to teach children. Okay. Um, so that, does that mean that we shouldn't be able to appreciate them? My mind is going sideways to an article I saw in a local paper today, uh, this morning, which referred to murals as uh, a way, uh, for uh, children to better appreciate art. Well, how about the rest of us? Can mm -hmm. we not learn something by looking at murals? Why does it, as, as if, but you see, I, I think the same intent is there as people saying, well, it just must be for children. There's always this, well, that's kid stuff. Yeah, there's there's this in you know embedded argument that simplistic is for children. But I mean, what is a billboard? It's what? a simplistic message that's trying to get adults to buy things. So what is a tweet? Right. We, we are in the time of technological shrinkage. Just say it in one line and and everybody will know what you're talking about. Really? You think? Yeah, probably, but then you, you say, no, that's not what I meant. I just saw what I meant by that tweet. Well, then why'd you put it out there? Why didn't you say what you meant? Because I don't have the space. I can't make it long enough. The thing about Aesop is not a tweet because you can have two lines uh, fable or you can have a half a page fable. You know, whenever you whenever you limit a technology for communication, you limit the possibility of clarity, exposition, and discussion of, of the immediate thing. It launch, should launch a lot of discussion uh, for its ambiguities or for its repellence. But uh, we we are not unfamiliar with the short form. We've embraced it in flash fiction in the culture. We've embraced it in tweets and Facebook postings or whatever. TikTok. Yeah. You know, what are we to make of <laughs> of the or memes? Yeah. Well, we all know what that meme means, do we? <laughs> right. right. It, may, it may mean many things. Yeah. And so these are all perfect examples of why like we've done throughout this series, um, we shouldn't strictly adhere to the morals that are being explicitly told <laughs> in these fables, right? Because that's the thing is, and it's, you know, it's, there is an, an inverse relationship, right? Between the length of the form that you are using 
and the clarity of your message. So it almost seems counterintuitive to say, well, with this very short story, we're saying a very explicit thing. Because as yeah. we've discussed with, with a short Twitter message or with a short TikTok video, the amount of interpretation you have within that small amount of content is very large. Whereas if I were to write a 6,000 page book on this, you'd know exactly, not exactly, but you would know with Closer, high with, precision what I was I was trying to say. Sure. And and this is this is why I think that there's a direct connection between the fables and these kind of technologies. Because the worst the worst thing that can happen is somebody posts a tweet and somebody says, Yeah, I agree. Well, that's not a discussion. Right. That's not anything. It's vacuity <laughs> embodied in a sentence. And so uh, you think that something has happened when it hasn't, which is rather like eating junk food and think that somehow you've had this transaction with your body that's going to benefit it. We, well, okay, we like junk food. We eat it once in a while, but it didn't do anything for us. Right. Uh, um, and, and I don't think the fables are junk food. Right. Um, and so, yeah, it doesn't have to be, it can be a 6,000 word treatise, treatise or 60,000 word treatise. Theater, uh, see, all the, the fables for me draw on all of these things. I've been thinking, thinking about this stuff. There was a form called Commedia dell'arte. Um, in, in, again, in, in loosely medieval times where there were stock figures. Uh, it was puppetry. And sometimes it was acting, but it started with puppetry. And, and so you knew what was supposed to happen because a certain character of the clown shows up. Or even in Shakespeare plays, you have uh, the jester or the clown. And that the term suggests a role. And therefore, the narrative seems to be predictable which is easily digestible, which is pop cultural in its own way. But there's more to it because every clown is not exactly the same. Not Festy, not, not anyone. So, so there's that going on with the tales. And, and, and they, uh, I, I just don't think any, f well, in theater too, uh, <laughs> there's a thing called dramaturgy. And dramaturgy is something that can be engaged in by a person who's assigned as a dramaturg in a production, certainly the director, but actors do it as well, which is to say you go to the text and see what you legitimately can bring from the text. What do you find about your character that you can embody, work with, bring to your own <clears throat> interpretation of the character, but it has to be able to be found within the lines you can't can't just say, "Well, I want a soul to be this way." No, <laughs> only can you show me where you can find that in the lines. Can you defend that? Can you explicate that so that we can bring that to the production? And I think it's the same with with Fox. Hmm. Well, we we associate certain things with Fox, but would could we envision a tale when Fox does X? And if we say, "Nope, nope," that's just not in any of the Fox tales we have as an given, then it's probably a misreading. But but that's far different than than what literary scholars and, uh, and so on have done for so long and, and what happened in literature classes when teachers would say, here's the meaning, memorize the meaning of this, then you can put it on a test. That's not inviting any thought. It's saying, here's 
the meaning. I'll show you how I came to that meaning, but I show you how everyone comes to that meaning because that's the only meaning there is. That doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that was really well said. Um, do you th- so do you think that these short forms of media are the present and future of fables? Do you think Twitter and, and TikTok and these sorts of things, do you think that that is the future of this? I, I, I think flash fiction is. I, I think Twitter is a, a, a fun example, but it's, it's too short. I don't, I don't think Twitter accomplishes anything. I think other than for aspiring writers or current writers who are lifting weights and trying to find the best way to say something in the shortest space possible. I think it's a practice zone. It's a notebook. It is not worthy of political discourse. It is not, it, it should never be a presidential way of, it's not an explanation. It's, it's, it's exclamations or uh, mini diatribes that mean nothing. And and so no, I do not think that Twitter is fables. Yeah, I think that it, it's the uh, it's not the tool; it's the usage of the tool, right? Yeah. Because there's probably some Aesop's fables that are under 140 characters, um, but nobody's using it that way, right? People are using it for spouting off opinions or saying, you know, like you said, it diatribe essentially. You do see writers who, um, especially um, comedy, right? Yeah. Like, how quickly can I? make a joke that will will hit well or you know or th- those sorts of things yes um but yeah as as far as writing a fable that's well, not really there and so what do you think do you think that do you think there is a place for fables or do you think that there's a, a life for fables in a modern society i do indeed because you and i were just talking about them whenever we encounter an animal and we extrapolate from that something about humanity we're engaging in fable making of a kind. Uh, I've, I've told you, I think of the time that I was on a lawnmower mowing down the paths that I have created in my own garden, so to speak, park. And, and I saw something. It looked like a dog, but the hair went up on my arm. I'm riding my lawnmower. I stop. I look. It's a coyote. What does the human do? The human says, get out of here. What right do I have to say that to them, right? And the coyote stops and flicks its ears. And I drive a little closer, like a fool. And I stand up on the lawnmower and I say, get out of here. And it turns and looks at me. And then even more foolishly, I stand off the lawnmower and raise my arms. And the coyote looked at me and it said this. <laughs> you know, it, it chuffed. And it walked on. Hmm. Now, there's a whole fable in that for me. And I can read anthropomorphically, the coyote was sizing me up and saying, you're not a threat. (laughs) (laughs) Which thus can tell me, what do I think I'm doing? Because I have a machine that I'm dangerous. Well, yeah, I can be dangerous. Does that mean I can overcome the animal world? No, that animal is much more wise about the ground that I've lived on because of its species memory. Uh, All kinds of things. Yeah, but if I put that on a tweet, <laughs> essentially tweets are nothing more but the moral of the story is at their best, and and that there's no story. Yeah, so so I think that you're right. I think that these sorts of things exist in the microcosms of our lives. But do you think that there's any? Is there a place in the public sphere? Right? Is there a way? You know. Like we we think about Aesop's fables and we think about Greek culture and attributing them 
to this one guy, this forming this collection of stories. Do you think there is a place for short form stories like this? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, because I've encountered it in homiletics by pastors before. Hmm. You know, there's a strange crossover between parable and fable. Yeah. And pastors are notoriously good at making up stories about, oh, there was a man who. <laughs> so it's, it's extent in, in, in the current culture. Uh, or, or people who say, well, uh, you know, I've done a lot of research and I know a fellow who, you know, now you're telling stories. Right. To, to support yourself for whatever reason. Sure. And flash fiction, extremely short fiction is, is about this. It's about keeping it. Uh, not giving everything so that it can, there can be an interpretive. Uh, and I think that that's what the fables we've talked about. That's what the fables invite. I don't think you, you hear a fable, you get told the moral and you've gained anything from it. Now, maybe then. Right. Uh, I think it's too sure of itself that way as a form, but I think the fable is alive and well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting to to think that even in modern times, right, there's still that, tension when with fables between is it an explicit moral or is it something that's inviting deeper thought right Mm -hmm. and i think the fables have always have been and always will be sort of a double-edged sword in that way you know when people hear it are you just going to let somebody tell you what the meaning of the story is or are you going to think deeper about it for yourself Mm. so yeah this has been a great series i love asap again in the future we might look at you know, the lion or the dog or, or, or some of these other characters. But for now, it's been a good wrap up. And uh, next week will be episode 100. Happy 99th, man. We've, yeah. had, a, we've had quite a trip. Yeah, we have. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. And um, until next time, keep on.